Alrighty, time to get into the meat of this episode. And for today's episode, we have Ukraine. Uh, and speaking of, did, did you guys see that video of Zelensky begging for money and credit? Credit? Like, I couldn't believe my eyes. Like, he, he said, and I quote, if you can't give us, can't give us some financial support, okay, okay, please give us a credit and we will give you back money end quote i i couldn't believe my ears i couldn't believe my eyes i i just said wow i laughed but i said wow like because that really said a lot about where where we've gotten at this point in the war it it, re it really does like it, it is sad it, you know on a on a separate note you know, when once you get past the irony of Ukraine is winning, Ukraine is winning, Ukraine is winning, and then all of a sudden the president of Ukraine is begging for credit to win the war and promising he'll pay it back, which uh, to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I'm not mistaken, that is the first time in this entire war that anyone has brought up the notion of America being repaid for the aid that we've given. I don't think anyone's brought up that as a, even a possibility. Even the, the people who claim to be financial conservatives, fiscal conservatives, the people who actually did call for some so, sort of accountability for the money that we're sending them, uh, you know, how do we verify it? Let's, can we audit it? Can, can we trace every dollar and where it goes? You know, look, even those people have not even brought up the idea of America being repaid. It, wow. We've gone from give us money so that we can do our elections to please give us money. We'll, we'll pay you back. But give us credit. Like the credit is crazy. And I, I, it's, wow. I, I posted on my Twitter, uh, but wow. Oh, and for those who want to know, it's uh, HW Geopolitics on X. <laughs> but it really does say a lot about where we've gotten. Like, it's it's a bit surreal, you know? At this point in the game, damn near everything is fucking surreal because all the things that we've been talking about on this podcast and that my sources, and I've told you who they are a couple of times, I'll run through them again at some point. But, you know, like the Duran, Rogue News, Tucker Carlson, I'm listening to Tucker Carlson, you know, these sources, what, where we've been at for like a year and a half now, Douglas McGregor, Scott Ritter, where, Jimmy Dore, where we've been at for like a year and a half now, uh, oh, Jackson Hinkle, Left Lens, Danny Haifong, just to name a few, you know. Where we've been at for like a year and a half now is what, what it's what we've been saying and sort of shouting into the void about is now coming to pass, especially here on this podcast. Here on this podcast, you have the Russians talking about taking more of central Ukraine, central Ukraine, including Kiev. And it's like, okay, well, that wasn't there before. That was not there before. Um, we're talking about the total destruction of Ukraine and the 
evaporation of the Ukrainian state into nothing but memory. And it was only here where you even heard that as a possibility. But we're at this point now where the jig is up and you can't keep the curtain over the Wizard of Oz. Everyone is starting to see that the wizard is just a, a dude behind a curtain with a really good with a really good sound system and a smoke machine. And it's crazy to be at this point. And again, to hear Zelensky begging, like literally begging, and not that, oh, give us money and we'll win the war for democracy. Give us money. You have to give us or your sons and daughters are going to be dying. You know, please. I don't, I don't think I've heard that man say please in, in my life. Certainly not throughout this war. That man said, please give us credit, give us something. And it it says a lot, doesn't it? We went from the ghost of Kiev to begging for credit. Wow. But that is, that's the level of desperation we've reached. But we're only just getting started because today I have a long piece on Ukraine covering multiple articles that have come out and I think you'll be very intrigued to see what's admitted in them. Now these articles came out uh, before last episode, but uh, you know a lot happened on the day of that I had to sort of squeeze into that episode and I figured it'd be more constructive and productive with our time to go over what these articles say in a another episode. And so that's what I did. And of course i made that decision and then the day after the day after you see zelensky begging for money and i'm like well okay that's a sign that we've made a good choice here so now we can cover all this ukraine news all together so that being said sit back and enjoy this continuation of what's basically become a series of ours this series of discussions on the tragedy of ukraine as it continues on so it may be the final act. So we'll start with the Time Magazine piece that they did with Zelensky. Uh, yeah, very, very intriguing. I have a snippet from the NBC article because it's a, a lot of the same things get repeated between these two articles. So I'm just going to do the Time Magazine, a little bit from the NBC. And then we'll get into the interview that The Economist did with Zeluzhny. So we got a lot to talk about. So the piece, uh, I have a series of quotes from the, the Time Magazine thing, and we'll just go over them and discuss them. So it starts with this quote from Zelensky. Quote, nobody believes in our victory like I do. Nobody. So that, uh, that's what he says at the beginning. But then he says that the scariest thing is that part of the world got used to the war in Ukraine. And he says that exhaustion with the war rolls along like a wave. You see it in the United States and Europe. And we see that as soon as they start to get a little tired, it becomes like a show to them. I can't watch this rerun for the 10th time. And, you know, he's right about that. People have gotten tired of the Ukraine war. People have gotten normalized with the idea that the war in Ukraine is a thing. It's a fact of life now. But I think what he's really saying here is that 
people are just going on with their lives. Which, mind you, isn't something that you're going to be able to do if the war is just that consequential for you. You, you don't just go on about your daily business, uh, at least not in the modern era anyway. Like, see, if, it, if this was the ancient era where you could know that you're at war, but you have no way of knowing what happened on the battlefield until it happens on the battlefield, it could be the most consequential war ever. You're still going to go about your business and you don't know what's happening on the battlefield. You just have to trust that, that the generals know what they're doing. But in modern war, where you can see what's going on in real time, well, to the greatest extent that we can, we don't know everything happening on the battle, but we, we get updates on the daily instead of on the, the weekly, monthly, or yearly, depending on how, because things used to have to take time to travel across great distances. But in the modern world, if this was really of consequence to us, and I'm talking about America here, if this war was of the great consequence and this uh, great importance to us, like we were sold on, you, you're not just going to disengage like that after a year and a half of fighting. You know, you're going to still be extremely invested in this. And you're going to be still talking about how Ukraine is, is democracy and we need to be able to fight Russia and Putin. People have gone about their lives, which says everything that you need to know about how it, quote unquote, important this war actually was for us. And Zelensky can see that. And while he doesn't say what I've said directly, he does observe the the consequence of that, the symptoms of a war being fought that doesn't actually impact you, which is that you just go on about your life. And that's detrimental to him because, well, we're his biggest supplier of money and weapons. Europe's not going to foot the bill. And even if they could, they don't have any weapons to give him. He can't do anything with euros if there's nothing to buy with them, which is a, a very nice anecdote for inflation as a, as a whole. But they also talk about the declining public support for the war in the U.S. They talk about how uh, Zelensky is such a good guy and how he always livens up the room when he walks in. But now, uh, well, quote, now he walks in, gets the updates, gives the orders and walks out, end quote, uh, which is something that was said by a longtime member of his team. And these are a lot of this is quotes taken from uh, aides and members of Zelensky's team, his close, uh, excuse me, his close partners, aides, you know, assistants, what have you, people, people that are in his circle, people within his inner circle and it proximate to that inner circle are where a lot of these quotes are going to come from. Not all of them come from Zelensky himself. So some of this is Zelensky. Some of this is sort of first, secondhand experiences with and around Zelensky. So that's sort of uh, something I should cover as we go deeper into this article. But we'll continue. So the article says that uh, Zelensky feels betrayed by his Western allies. Uh, they say they have left him without the means to win the war, only the means to survive it. Now, that's a very important quote. That's a very important detail, I should say, because it is true. But I don't think that this article or the people writing it quite understand why that is important. They because they're, they're probably writing this from the perspective of, oh, we could do more. We, we haven't done enough for Ukraine. Because that, that's the sort of sympathy you get when reading this article. We haven't done enough for Ukraine. We've only, we've only given them the means to survive the war, but not to win it. But when you, you just take a moment to step back and think about what that actually means, in, you know, in the context of how much we've already given, 
if everything that we've given so far, and it, that's a lot, all right? That's a lot. Like we're gonna, it's gonna take us years to replace what we've given them. We don't have the production to replace that very quickly or very easily. It's gonna take us years to replace what we have given and lost in Ukraine. All that we have given in Ukraine was only enough for Zelensky and for Ukraine to survive the war, not to win, which is what we were promised. It was what we were told it was going to happen, you know, mad after magically, uh, you know, way back in March of 2022, when the script was just magically flipped and oh my God, we, we've, we know now that Russia isn't as strong as we thought they were and that China is the only real competition we have, you know, you know, all that, that assumption that became the new accepted norm from which we based all of the assumptions thereafter. And by we, I mean other people, because, you know, we didn't buy it here on this podcast. Ever since then, we've been told that Ukraine was winning the war. When Ukraine's winning the war, Ukraine's winning. Look at all those Russian tanks just burning up. Look at how they just have this 40 mile long, con, 40 mile long convoy just blown up. Oh, look at the ghost of Kiev. You remember the ghost of Kiev? I bet you don't. Remember Snake Island? You know, with the brave Snake Island. Fuck you. <laughs> you, remember, you remember that? All that propaganda? We were told... Ukraine was going to win from the moment onwards where the new narrative was that Russia was going what Russia was uh, not as strong as we thought they were even as the Russians shrugged off our sanctions which the Russians themselves were afraid would cause a, a 20 25% uh, dip in their economy it made them stronger it made their currency stronger and we were over here talking about how Russia's losing the war Russia didn't lose anything they fell back and we know now why they fell back, because it was a, a move meant in good faith for the negotiations that were going on in Istanbul. That's why they pulled out from the north and stayed in the south. They pulled out from the north, one, to consolidate their line in the south, and two, as a gesture of good faith for the negotiations that were going on at the time. The Ukrainians called it a counteroffensive, and we ate that shit up. And by we, I mean other people. But a lot of people ate that shit up. Like you see on the war maps, when they, they show you the, the the colors for controlled territory and then you have the lighter color for uh, territory that's been recaptured and they have all, all, all the territory in the north that Russia used to hold as recaptured territory. It's like, well, sure, technically, but let's not pretend that you took these back in these great counteroffensives. No, the Russians literally left as a gesture of good faith for the negotiations. And then you burnt the negotiations down, not literally, but you walked away, encouraged to do so by Britain and United States when Boris Johnson went to Ukraine. So all that we have given you from that moment on, on the promise that you were going to win, because that's what we were all told, all of that was only enough for you to survive the war, not to win, even though that... Wasn't that the point of the war? Wasn't that the point of fighting Russia over there so we don't have to fight them over here, according to Chuck Schumer? Wasn't the counteroffensive supposed to go all the way to the Sea of Azov and cut Russia off from Crimea? What happened? None of what we were told was going to happen happened. But in spite of that, look at how much we gave Ukraine and understand 
that it did not win them the war. So when he talks about, well, when the article, because this wasn't a quote from him, when the article says that he feels betrayed, we, we didn't give him enough to win the war, we gave him more than any country reasonably would have given him. Any other country would not have given him anywhere near the quantity of aid that we've given, especially in proportion to what we have. Like if we had we're just these massive stockpiles of weapons, then maybe we could have given that. Maybe some other country would have given them that amount of weapons. But the amount of weaponry we've given him, a third of our HIMARS, no regular country would have done that. No regular country would have done that. All, nearly all of our 155 millimeter artillery shells, no normal country would have done that. Nobody else would have done that. Like what we have given in proportion to what we had to begin with is just these ridiculous proportions that nearly one-to-one -one in a lot of instances, a case in point, are artillery. And yet that was only enough for him to survive the war. So basically, if we, you know, take just another step back to analyze that, he needed the military stockpiles and equipment levels, not of the U.S., not of the U.S. and Europe combined, because we've already given that. Not of all of NATO. Because that was all that combined was only enough to survive the war, not to win it. So what he's saying, and I, I, I don't know if the article writers realize this when they say this, but what they're saying is that in order to win, Ukraine needed the stockpiles and equipment, not of the U.S., not of NATO, not of the U.S. and Europe, but of the Russian military. They needed stockpiles of weapons in quantities and qualities on scale equal to the Russian military to win a war against the Russian military because all of NATO combined couldn't cut it. That is what has been said here. If we just take a few steps back to analyze it, which obviously Ukraine didn't have. But why did no one else realize that until now? Why, why, why are you only just now saying this? Why didn't you look at this and go, okay, well, we don't have enough weaponry to beat Russia. Because we've sent them a lot. Damn near everything that Zeluzhny said he needed to win the war but almost around this time last year. He didn't get all of the artillery he needed or the artillery... Um, he got a lot of shells, but not all the artillery tubes that he needed. But he got those tanks. He got those armored vehicles. I didn't think he would get them. He got them. And they still lost. They, they lost them in a, in a month. They lost all of that in a month. In the first month of this counteroffensive. Honestly, the first two weeks, if we're being completely honest. When those, those reports were coming in, it was just ridiculous how much equipment they were losing every day. He got what he asked for, He's, what he said he needed to win the war, and it didn't work. They lost it in a month and then dragged the offensive on for five months and got nowhere. So the thing you said you needed to win, you got and you didn't win. You, We, we were told you were going to win the entire time. We give you billions, tens of billions of dollars. We've given you even more than what we give you for that offensive because we were giving you stuff and equipment before you needed that for your offensive. 
before you asked for it. We were giving you equipment the entire time. And that's to say nothing of the equipment that we were giving Ukraine prior to the war. All of that was not enough. To win the war, it was barely enough to fight the Russians to a standstill. And that's just because the Russians choose not to advance. The Russians are choosing to advance now. And what we observed at the beginning of the war has held true. Where the Russians choose to stay, the Ukrainians can't force them out. But where the Russians choose to go, Ukraine can only make Russia bleed for that exchange. Ukraine can't stop the Russians' advance. But they, but Russia can stop Ukraine's advances. And with a dynamic like that, there's only one way that's going to go, and you're going to lose. Unless you're inflicting ridiculous casualties on the Russians when you're defending and when you're attacking... In which case, sure, they win the battles, but they're losing the war. That's not how this has been going. The, the casualties have been disproportionately in Russia's favor, on top of the fact that Russia has disproportionately more men available for this endeavor than Ukraine ever did. And manpower is another thing. Uh, I think that's deeper on to the article. But how are you going to win this? How are you going to win this? And why, after realizing that you need more than what you've been given, more than what you said you needed to win, what Zeluzhny said, I should say, how are you going to win? You, ha you have no path to victory. You have no path to victory. You have to negotiate, but that he doesn't want to negotiate. Uh, they, they talked about how, um, how Russia not Russia, how Zelensky still won't give up, but that his belief in Ukraine's victory has uh, essentially caused him to become the problem. Right. Because the article says, quote, he deludes himself. Uh, and, and this is a, a quote taken from one of his closest aides. Again, a lot of these quotes are taken from aides and assistants and people within his inner circle. He deludes himself, one of his closest aides tells me in frustration. Uh, and he, me being one of the people who was co conducting these interviews for the article, you know, so he deludes himself, one of his closest aides tells me, in frustration. Quote, we're out of options, we're not winning, but try telling him that, end quote. So within his inner circle, we see people who are either losing faith in the idea that Ukraine's going to win. Well, he, he literally says we're not winning and that we're out of options. There's no more military aid coming in, and the military aid you were getting before only got you enough to survive, not win. The U.S. doesn't have infinite amounts of equipment either. You've gone through quite a bit of it. You are out of options. You are not winning. Your best option is to negotiate, but Zelensky doesn't want that. And Zelensky's stubbornness, uh, some of his aides say, has hurt their team's efforts to come up with a new strategy, a new message, as they have de debated the future of the war, one issue has remained taboo. The possibility of negotiating a peace deal with the Russians. So the one option that could end this for you, the one option that could have prevented this from happening in the first place, and the one option that could have ended the fighting almost as fast as it had started, back in March of 2022, the one option that can 
you know, stop what's coming is the one option he doesn't want to take. The one realistic option that they have available to them is the one he doesn't want to take. But your negotiating position is only going to get worse from this point on. You're not going to get any more, uh, anywhere near as much weapons as you were getting before, meaning that what you had that was enabling you to survive, now you're going to get less than subsistence levels of equipment and money. That means losing the war of attrition. And you were already losing before with everything that we gave you. But he doesn't want a ceasefire. He doesn't want to even talk about ceasefire. He doesn't want to talk to the Russians. He doesn't want to negotiate a peace deal with the Russians. Where if you had if you had negotiated that peace deal with Minsk one with Minsk one, you could have ended the fighting and complete completely reintegrated the Donbass back into Ukraine. Minsk two, you could have still had full sovereignty over the Donbass, but the Donbass would have had, you know, you'd have had make, you would have had to make changes to your constitution, right? To allow for a sort of special status for the Donbass within Ukraine, but they're still, they still would have been part of Ukraine. As a matter of fact, had you done Minsk one and made peace, Crimea would still be a part of Ukraine. Had you done Minsk two, the Donbass would still be a part of Ukraine. Had you accepted the peace proposal that the Russians offered in in March, right after they invaded you, had you accepted that peace, you would have only lost the Donbass and had to accept that Crimea was not yours anymore on paper. You'd have had to sign on paper. Now, if you make peace, you have to accept the loss of Kherson and Zaporizhia as well as the Donbass, you know, Luhansk, Donetsk, and Crimea. Five regions. So you went from losing no regions if you had accepted Minsk one, to losing one region, Crimea, had you accepted Minsk two, to losing three regions, had you accepted the de facto Minsk three, which is the Russian peace proposal that was shot down in March and April of 2022, where you would have only lost Luhansk and Donetsk, you know, the Donbass, plus recognized Crimea as a part of Russia. So zero regions with Minsk one, they would have lost zero regions with Minsk one. They would have lost one region, Crimea, with Minsk two. The Donbass would have been autonomous, but still part of Ukraine. Unofficial Minsk three, you would have lost the Donbass. They would have been independent and you would have lost Crimea. You would have had to recognize the laws of Crimea. That's, and now we're at unofficial Minsk four, where you're gonna have to recognize the loss of five regions. Because now you have to add Kherson and Zaporizhia to the list of regions you're not getting back. This deal isn't going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. The more land that the Russians have to take, the less land is going to be available for you than peace deal. Like I said it in the beginning of this war. If Russia has to march all the way to Lviv which is in the way in the west of Ukraine, if they have to march all the way to Lviv to end this war, they're not giving the land that they took back. The land that they took along the way is going to stay in Russia's hands, in perpetuity. You're not getting it back. But he still doesn't want to negotiate. He still doesn't want to talk peace with the Russians. He doesn't want to admit defeat. 
Instead, he wants to continue going as he has been. And Zelensky said that World War III could start in Ukraine, so you have to give him more money and aid to stop it. We have to give more money and aid to stop World War III. But, and they say, they asked me, quote, they asked me straight up, if you, if we don't give you the aid, what happens? Uh, and this is Zelensky talking. They asked me straight up, if we don't give you the aid, what happens? What happens is we will lose, and end quote. That's Zelensky's words. If you don't give him the aid, he loses. But remember, the aid that we've given him, and we've given him a lot, was only enough to survive, not to win. And they're out of options. And according to his aides, they're out of options. They're not winning. But he still doesn't want to talk peace. It's not like... The aide is the only person who knows this. Zelensky knows this. He just he just said it. If we don't give him aid, he loses. The aid is drying up now with the Israel war happening. We saw that bill that tried that got through the house that was supposed to be a hundred billion dollars, sixty billion for Ukraine, forty billion for Israel, fourteen billion for Israel got through, not a dime for Ukraine, and nothing was said you remember we observed that nothing bad was said about that bill regarding the lack of ukraine aid it was about oh it's not realistic you're delaying our efforts to help israel nothing was said about ukraine and how they literally all 60 billion dollars was just scratched off of that bill which is a good thing for us but if, from ukrainian perspective you've already been forgotten so you're not getting more aid the aid has officially dried up. Like you, you watched it dry up in Congress in a matter of two seconds. A, a, a speaker of the House was evicted for the first time in U.S. history over this, and the new speaker com cut you completely out of the equation of foreign aid. Well, in terms of uh, new bills to give you more money, anyway. And you yourself said that without the aid, you lose. The aid is gone now, officially. It's gone now. So what happens now? You lose, in Zelensky's own words. So you need, again, if we take a step back and really think about these words here, you need more than what we have in order to win. And if we don't give you that, if we don't give you what you're getting now, then you're going to lose. Again, enough to survive, but not enough to win is what we've given. But we've given all that we have. All that we have isn't enough for this guy to win, but he needs more. It's physically impossible for us to give you more, and we don't have the productive capacity to increase what we've given or even to replace what we've given or as, as it stands. Your only options are to surrender or to lose. You can surrender on on your own terms, or you can surrender by force of arms. And when the Russians march all the way to Kiev and drag you to the, the negotiating table. And if you still don't go, if you if you pull a... Who was who that guy who was in charge of Afghanistan? Who was who that president who fled to Tajikistan? when the, the Taliban rolled back through the Kabul. 
you're, you're going to look like him. And there's not going to be a Ukraine, not as you know it anymore. It's all going to be in Russian hands. It's going to, And what's left in the West of Ukraine is going to be partitioned between Russia, Poland, Hungary, and perhaps a number of other countries, Romania and Slovakia, come to mind. That's what's going to happen if you don't negotiate. If you do negotiate, you may be able to keep what you have. You can argue from the position of Russia hasn't conquered this territory, that territory, and that territory. Therefore, you can't have this territory, that territory, and that territory. If the Russians have already conquered the shit, you're not going to get back. And you have no leverage to argue against them when they say that it's going to stay in Russia this time. But he's not thinking about that. He's not, he's honestly, he's not thinking at all. He's panicking. He is literally panicking. And that's not good for leadership. And that's definitely not going to be good for Ukraine or himself in the end. And that, that panic is under, as you know, we can sit here and criticize him for it. It's understandable. This entire situation, this entire scam that he was sold on, because remember, he was going to make peace in March. He was going to sign the deal. He was going to, he sent his delegates, they initialed on the dotted line. They were going to end this thing as quickly as it started. We sold him on the lie that he was going to win. We sabotaged him. And we're now washing our hands of the whole affair. Leaving him, leaving him holding the bag. So it's understandable that he's panicked. It's understandable that he's not in his right mind. It's understandable. He's been scammed. And he, an entire country is about to go down the drain because of that scam. If he makes peace, the Nazis will kill him. He's in an impossible position. He's, he's in, a, in a very, very, very impossible position. So for as again, as much as I will, I will criticize him for the actions and his behaviors and the things that he in Ukraine decides to do. Uh, at a at a human level, it's completely understandable why he's doing and behaving the way he's behaving. And again, at a at a human level, it's sad. It is sad, and that's why I call it the tragedy of Ukraine. They need more than what we have to win, but if we don't give them what we are giving, then they're going to lose. Now, the article goes on to talk about the dangers of winter as Russian attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure will lead to blackouts again this year. And how the, the Ukrainian government essentially fears that this time the people are going to blame the government instead of Russia. Because where before it was the Russians attacked you, they attacked the infrastructure. Oh, my God. They're the blame. They're the evil ones. But this time, they've had a whole year to prepare. So if there are blackouts this time around, even if there isn't much the Ukrainian government could have done about it to avoid it, people, they're afraid that the people will blame the government instead of Russia. So they, the government is now afraid of some sort of uprising or mass protest in Ukraine against the government especially considering that the people they they've been robbed of an election mind you 
uh, their Ukraine doesn't want to do elections. Zelensky has outlawed political other political parties. He's banned them. He's banned opposition media. Only one state media is allowed to operate. He's cracked down on churches, Orthodox churches. Like it's become a totalitarian state. There's no outlet for the people living there to voice or exercise feelings and sentiments contrary to the state. And what they're afraid of is that the second you get uh, one major protest, that protest could morph into a sort of outlet for all the other animosities that the people have against you, which is how, you know, super duper hardcore authoritarian systems crash and burn. If you don't provide some outlet for people's discontent with the government, well, then they overthrow the government. And wars usually don't help with that process of maintaining public order. And they're afraid now that the people are going to fight them back, essentially. And they don't have the man, they don't, they definitely don't have the manpower to fight a war on two fronts uh, against Russia and against themselves. And who knows whether or not their soldiers would actually shoot. So they're in an impossible situation. They, they talk about how the winter will limit offensive operations on both sides. We've talked about this as well. So they get a a bit of a brief reprieve from the Russian assault on them because the mud's going to start setting in. They're gonna have to. They're gonna have to dig in, and they'll get a. I say a reprieve. It's more of a, relatively speaking, to the, the high intensity combat that they've seen throughout the summer. It is a reprieve, but it's not gonna last very long. It's gonna be a few months because when spring comes around, the Russians will move. So the but the, at the very least, the winter will help them in this regard. It'll limit operations on both sides. Now they also talk about Ukrainian soldiers now deliberately not following orders so not necessarily mutinying not necessarily uh but more so along the lines of that the the french mutiny uh when the when the the journal the generals tried to send the french troops over the over the the trenches they they chose not to do anything they chose to stand there and not go they deliberately disobeyed attack orders saying we'll defend the trenches but we're not going to advance we will defend france but we're not we're not going to go out there and die for no reason when we know what the result's going to be and so here we have uh, this guy admitting that that same exact situation is happening now in ukraine where you have some of the soldiers saying quote we're not moving forward uh well actually no that's one of his uh close aides one of Zelensky's close aides saying we're not moving forward uh, some frontline commanders, uh, um, I'm just trying to get through these, these quotes because they're a bit strange. Some of the frontline commanders, he continues, and this is the guy, uh, the aide talking. Some of the frontline commanders have been begun refusing orders to advance. So it's not just the soldiers either, it's the commanders. Even when they came directly from the office of the president. And we're talking about the order to go over the the top and to advance against the Russians. They just refuse to advance. They just want to sit in the trenches and hold the line, he says. But we can't win a war that way. 
Well, you're damn right you can't. But you also can't win a war by losing every man you have against rushes that you're, or defenses that you're not getting through. The article talked about uh, one such disobeyed order, uh, and this is an order to, quote, retake the city of Horolivka, which the article says is a strategic outpost in eastern Ukraine that the Russians have held and fiercely defended for nearly a decade. So context here, a decade, they're obviously talking about going back, but prior to the Russian intervention here, the, the Russo-Ukrainian war, they're talking about an, an outpost that hasn't been under Ukrainian control since the Donbass seceded and, and started the civil war in Ukraine. Their little wars for independence. The, these, this stronghold they were ordered to retake has not been a part of Ukraine for nearly a decade. And they haven't been able to take it when it was just the rebels they were fighting against in Donetsk and Luhansk. Now they're supposed to take it against the Russian military too? So they said no to that. And they admit, they also admitted uh, that they're running low on manpower. They're running low on manpower. Like, uh, but before we get into the manpower, there's a there's an additional thing here from the retaking of Horlivka, the, the city that's been in the Donbass this entire time since the Donbass war began. Because uh, one of the officers said, after being given that order, he says, with what? They don't have the men or the weapons, says the officer. Where are the weapons? Where is the artillery? Where are the new recruits? So the artillery is not making it to the front line. The, the weapons aren't making it to the front line. So where, where did all this go? Where did all the money go? Is another question that's sort of raised here. Granted, a lot of that equipment did get destroyed. <clears throat> so we, I mean, it's not like this is, it's not like this is June of 2022 or, or say March slash April of 2023 when they were getting ready for the counteroffensive. We're pretty late into this game and they're out. I mean that a lot of that pro equipment probably get, got destroyed or overused and could no longer be used anyway. But where are the weapons? Where's the artillery? Where are the new recruits? One of Zelensky's close aides said that even if the promised aid came through, so the weapons, the artillery, everything we've been promising, the, the F-16s, the tanks, the attackums, you know, even if the promised aid came through, they don't have the men to use them. And that's a, a, a stunning admission. That's a stunning admission. Because you need more aid than what we're giving you to win, but even if the aid that we've already promised you comes in, you don't have the men to use it. And they admit that the average age of the Ukrainian soldier is 43. Now, this is a number that I've, I've heard bouncing around for like a couple weeks now. I couldn't find a source that could directly verify that. I did hear it from a number of my the sources that I've heard talking about it but it was uh you know it was a rare thing that got brought up oh it's the average age is 43 it's like well these that's what's being said 
But now, we can say definitively that it's true. Forty-three. So what happened to the twenty-year-olds? What happened to the thirty-year-olds? Because mind you, this is an average. And if you know anything about an average, it's really easy. It is a lot easier to bring an average down than it is to get an average up. Anybody who's tried to get their grades up in school (laughs) knows that it's really easy to get an F on one test. And now all of a sudden you drop down a whole grade level, but it's really hard to get your average back up. So the fact that the average is this high, because I I don't imagine it was anywhere near that high at the beginning. Well, I imagine it would have been at the high 20s, low 30s, you know, because, you know, lots of people in their 20s and 40s and 30s probably joined up thinking that there was going to be a quick war for glory for Ukraine. Slava Ukraini, that's the thought. So where's all the the 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds to bring that average down? Because there should be more of them than 40-year-olds. Why is the average 43? How many people over 50 are now serving in the armed forces of Ukraine? How many old men are manning the guns? And not only that, the women, because they're conscripting women now. What proportion of this are women? Like, that's a really, really bad number. A, a really, really bad statistic, I should say. Not just a number, a really bad statistic for the average age to be 43. And they say this is despite increased recruitment efforts, which really just amounts to press gangs in the streets where they grab you, literally grab you off the street, put you in, in a van and drive you off to the front line. You know, the, the way the British used to man their Navy, where they would just send a gang into the street and kidnap their own citizens and eventually American citizens too and impress them into the British Navy. That's what they're doing for their army now and it's still not enough. And then they go into the accusations of corruption in the country which is something that was sort of kept on the down low not quite you know denied but was really 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 kept on the down low even though like the Nazi problem it was a a well-known problem prior to the war but once the war started you weren't allowed to talk about it so now it's resurfacing the corruption problem now what doesn't you know get brought up in this article is the nazi issue but i think that's that's being saved for the very end because uh, that would completely delegitimize any aid whatsoever given to ukraine and would feed into putin's propaganda about the war so they're not going to do that. they're not going to do that until they have no choice but to admit it but this entire thing that we're going through with uh, these articles that we're talking about comes off to me as these people in these various newsrooms we're talking we're doing the time magazine right now we'll do a little bit of the nbc and then we're going to do the economist on delusion all of it together uh seems to me like them trying to get ahead of the story because they know for a fact they're behind they know they're behind like we have been saying all these things since day one they're catching up to where we've been they know they're behind 
but they can't afford to be that far behind. See, it's okay to be behind the story and be reactive and you can still maintain a narrative because then you can say, oh, we, well, this is new information. Oh, we did, we couldn't possibly have known that. We know now that this, this, this one was true, uh, but there was no way anybody could have known that before. It was just, uh, everyone believed this. So, you know, there, there, there's an art to maintaining the narrative and you know you got to give them credit where credit's due they're they're good at maintaining that narrative but this is them trying to get ahead of the story which is another indication that the collapse of ukraine is um growing closer by the day i don't think it'll happen this winter i think that they're going to be hollowed out over the course of the winter and we're going to be shown exactly how hollowed out they were come spring summer of next year when they just fall in, like, I think it's gonna be really bad for Ukraine next summer. I think it's gonna be really, cause this summer was the the summer of Ukraine's counteroffensive. Next summer will be the summer of the Russian offensive. The long, long, long awaited Russian offensive. And it's gonna be absolutely devastating. 43 years old is the average age of the U Ukrainian soldier. They're running out of men, as evident by that fact alone, they're running out of men. They're, they're kidnapping people off the streets, up to and including women. They're getting lots of lots of old men. And now the, the corruption's coming out. And when it's all said and done, when right at the very end, the, the, these guys will start to admit that there was a Nazi problem in Ukraine. They'll say it again, you know, because they said it before the war, but now you're not allowed to say it. But uh, the article continues, quote, amid all the pressure to root out corruption, I assumed perhaps naively that officials in Ukraine would think twice before taking a bribe or pocketing state funds. But when I made this point to a top presidential advisor in early October, <clears throat> he asked me to turn off my audio recorder so he could speak more freely. Uh, quote, Simon and Simon must be the name of the person doing the interview here, quote, Simon, you're mistaken, he says. People are stealing like there's no tomorrow. So these guys are taking all that money that we've been giving them and they're pocketing it. They're, they're pocketing it. So no wonder there's no weapons on the front. They're pocketing it. They're, they're selling them on the black market. And I would not be surprised if a, a good number of those weapons end up ended up in the hands of, I don't know, Hamas, Hezbollah, you know, j just a thought, just a thought. But he's, we're, they're stealing like there's no tomorrow. These people are getting ready to exit stage left, because that's what that, that's, that is, that's what that is. They're getting ready to exit stage left. They're going to take as much money as they can, because it's still coming in for free. They're going to get themselves a nice mansion somewhere in maybe Maybe the Bahamas, maybe in Florida, or maybe they want to go to Europe, go to Switzerland, Southern Germany, the Alps, or the Mediterranean. They're, they're, they're going to go somewhere. It's just not going to be Ukraine. And they're certainly not going to go to Russia. Will they be prosecuted and put, put in jail? No, they're going to leave. They're going to go to Britain. They're going to go to France, Spain, Portugal. Italy, maybe Greece, again, Florida, California, you know, Brazil, 
the Caribbean. They're going to go a whole lot of places that aren't Ukraine when this war is over, and they're going to take as much money as they can with them. They're going to live as comfortably as they possibly can outside of Ukraine after having run Ukraine into the ground. And that's the level of corruption that we're at right now. And it continues saying, quote, even the firing of the defense minister did not make officials feel any fear, he adds, because the purge took too long to materialize. The president was warned in February that corruption had grown rife inside the ministry, but he dithered for more than six months, giving his allies multiple chances to deal with the problems quietly or explain them away. But the time, but by the time he acted ahead of the U.S.'s visit, uh, ahead of his visit to the U.S., excuse me, it was too late. And this was said by another presidential advisor. So the corruption allegations are coming out. They're being exposed now for the public to view, the normies who thought Ukraine was going to win. 43 years old is the average age of the Ukrainian soldier. They can't retake these cities, these positions. They're being given unreasonable orders. The soldiers are defecting. Because uh, there's another thing. The, 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 a lot of these soldiers are actually just le literally leaving their position and surrendering to the Russian side. That Now, that isn't admitted in this article here. But it is something that's been going on in the background as well. The Volga is a sort of a radio frequency that they use. Uh, a holdover from the Soviet time. Volga, they, they would tune into that. That's the name of the free, the radio frequency. They tune into that and they can surrender and the Russians will treat them nicely. And, you know, they won't shoot them on sight. And they can surrender and then be safe on the Russian side from the, the insanity of their own leadership, essentially. At least that's from the perspective of those who would choose to defect. Who, those of those who are still alive, that is. But that's where they are. Corruption is being exposed. 43 years old, that's the average age of the Ukrainian soldier. They're being given unreasonable orders from a, a president who understands that he's going to lose. Who completely understands that he's going to lose, but refuses the one way out, which is negotiations with Russia. Refuses to do it. And he's still talking about nobody believes in our victory like I do. Even though, in his own words, if we don't give him the aid, he loses. Even though he says that he needs more aid to win, but any person can see that the amount of aid we've given, it was already more than we could afford to give. <laughs> and even as he watched... The Ukraine aid, that last package for Ukraine aid, die in the house. All $60 billion vanished. And not a, not a moment a word was said. For Ukraine, it was all about Israel and how we're delaying Israel getting its money. As if that money belonged to Israel. He knows he's going to lose. He knows that there's no public appetite for his war. No one in the United States or Europe is interested in his war. He knows that there's no more money coming. He knows there's no more weapons coming. And he himself knows that if he doesn't get that aid, he's going to lose. 
and yet he carries on. Nobody believes in our victory like I do, says Zelensky. Nobody. So we'll sort of pivot from there onto the, the NBC article, because uh, the NBC, I, I have a few brief sh- uh, quotes from that article. It basically was almost the same as the uh, the Time magazine. So we'll just cover these and then we'll move on to the Zeluzhny interview. Uh, so in this, uh, the NBC piece, he says, quote, we need to save our country. That's why one of the ways is to co-produce air defense, end quote. So a, a straight up admission that they're low on air defense missiles. Straight up admission. We need to co-produce air defense missiles. Well, why would we need to co-produce them if you're winning the war? What happened to the missiles you were given? Why do we need to co-produce them? Uh, essentially, he's saying you need to produce more, but hey, look, we're going to offer ourselves up. We can help you produce it. You know, just give us the money and give us the industry and, and we'll, we'll produce it. Come on. It's another beg. Another ask. Uh, and he says, quote, and this is Zelensky saying, quote, but during this time, during our co-production, our message to the world, to the United States, to Europe, to Asia, to give us some air defense systems, just to use them, just to rent them, rent for this period, especially winter. Winter is a very, very challenging period, end quote. Begging, begging for air defenses, just to rent them. Just to just to, just to get our hands on them, please give us the air defense, please, please give us something. He's just begging. He is on his knees begging for air defenses, meaning that there's nothing left in the chamber for Russia's air force. He has nothing to stop the Russian air force anymore. That's what I can extrapolate from that. He has nothing to stop the Russian air force from operating with impunity over his skies just to rent them though is crazy and Zelensky also said quote if Russia will kill all of us they will attack NATO countries and you will send your sons and daughters and it will be uh, I'm sorry but the the price will be higher uh, he, he also says quote it is very important not to lose the will not to lose this strong position and not to lose your democracy. So essentially going back to the, the, the other pitch that's been sold to us, which is that if Ukraine doesn't win the war, Putin's a madman, he's going to go invade Poland and the Baltics and all these other things. Oh, if you don't give us money, if you don't give us aid, uh, we're fighting on your behalf. So if you don't give it to us, then when we're finished, Russia's going to continue to attack and you're going to have to go fight the Russians yourselves which will be another lie, which is going to be exposed as untrue. And, and honestly, the polls have already demonstrated that they don't actually believe that because the Polish government has promised no more aid to Zelensky. So if not helping Zelensky win the war means that Poland gets invaded by Russia, well, then you'd think that Poland would be the first to continue giving money, but they've stopped and they've been the first to stop. So this narrative is coming crashing down. He knows that his days are numbered. And that the clock is ticking, and it's just a really, really bad day to be the president of Ukraine. Really, really bad day. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. 
I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.